to Lakeland's Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Lakeland, please visit our website at lakeland.church. So here we are, summer playlist. I love that, that image of the car. You turn up the music and, uh, and you just kind of take off. What is it? You can throw this in the chat. What is that song that you just love to crank it up, like crank up the music, roll down the windows, and let the music uh, just soar? And just what's, what's your summer playlist right now? Uh, we're diving into this series. It's designed really for us. We're just going to be looking at some of our favorite songs right now uh, in terms of uh, that's on the radio, some of our favorite worship songs. And, uh, and then we're going to be connecting this, though, to like there are deep-seated biblical truths that are just that are written in these worship songs that a lot of times we just kind of sing the lyrics and we hop right past it. And really what we want to do is we want to anchor our hearts to these songs so when you hear it, you're going to go, oh man, I, I remember this this biblical truth that's so profound, it's huge in my life, and, and we want that to be something that you're regularly drawn back into kind of week after week. And so this week, give me a drum roll. Those of you on stage, give me, yeah, it's on the lap. You at home, give me a drum roll. You're not too cool to do this, okay? Drum roll, the song of the week is... God of Revival. <laughs> I love it. So I'll be the first one to say, well, the first time I heard this song, I, I remember I was like, I just love, like it, it just stirred something within me. Have you ever had this where it's like you hear a song and all of a sudden something stirs within you in kind of a fresh way and you're like, it just connects with your heart in a way that's, it, that's unique. And when it came to the bridge of the song where it says this, come awaken your people, come awaken the city. I, I love proclaiming things and declaration. And so um, when I heard those, lyrics, I'm like, yeah, I just want to declare awakening over myself, over our city. Um, God of revival, pour it out, pour it out. Every stronghold will crumble. I hear the chains hit the ground. I was like, yeah, I just get kind of excited about that. And so I remember the first time I heard this and we've done it a handful of times here at the church, but at the end of this service, you're going to want to crank it up loud at your house or wherever you're at and, uh, and let this song just minister to you or sing along, but it's going to be fun. So we're going to get to that. Uh, to, before we kind of get too much further, because my heart and my prayer over the really the last three weeks has been revival. And so as we kind of take off into this week and we talk about revival and what does that look like, let me give you a definition uh, so we can all know what we're talking about here. Hopefully this is on. Okay, here we go. Here's a definition. It may not be the best, but it's one I found I really liked. It's spiritual renewal in the life of the church. Revival is the restoration of the church itself to a vital and fervent relationship with God after a period of moral decline, after a period of, of perhaps drifting away or walking away. They're coming back with passion for the Lord. Now here's a good question is it's who does revival apply to? Does it apply to our whole city, our entire nation? And I would say probably not. Revival, really the whole concept of being revived means that at one point you were revived. I know that's not a word, but you, you know what I mean. That at one point there was life, there was passion and you're coming back to that. Uh, Maybe it, meaning it doesn't apply to everyone, but it does apply to Christians. It applies to those who would call themselves Christ followers. Maybe you'd think of it this way. Have you ever known a Christian who you would say, well, they're not acting very Christ-like? 
I know, sometimes we're like, yeah, I could name a few right now. <laughs> and I know, that's just, we're not going to go there. Uh, maybe that's you right now, actually. Or maybe it's some of us who would say, I love Jesus, but there was a time in my life when I would openly admit that my passion for him was greater. And I think even you would be saying, I, I want my heart to be revived to that place of greatest passion and even beyond there. And the point is that many times when we think about revival, I think sometimes we think that it's for someone outside, someone over there, when more often than not, it's for someone right here. It's for us. In fact, I think revival, I said it over the last three weeks, revival always starts with us. It starts right here. And um, that's what we want to see here today, uh, is a personal revival that becomes maybe a city revival. And that's how it can become a state revival, a national revival. And this is a great way to actually even launch into our summer playlist is we're going to review a little bit of what we've covered over the last handful of weeks. See, over the past three weeks, we've been talking about these things that set God up to do the things that he does. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse uh, 14, this is what it says. We've gone over this uh, week after week. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear them from heaven, I'll forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. And this is a great picture of God just doing a great work in our land. And most of us are like, yeah, I want that. I want, I want God to do that in my, in my life and in our land. And yet, it's really, it's a cause and effect verse. And we've talked about this. It's if we do this, then God will do that. And the things, our behaviors uh, that are in here is that we humble ourselves, we pray and seek his face, and we turn from our wicked ways. And uh, what I want to do this week is I want to look at an individual in Scripture who models really these exact behaviors that Second Chronicles talks about. Now, I wasn't just making it up in the previous weeks, but we see someone who actually models all of those attributes that leads to one of the greatest revivals we see in Old Testament history. And it happens also uh, happen in the life of one of the greatest our youngest leaders and youngest kings in all of the Old Testament. His name is Josiah, and uh, his story is found in 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23. So if you've got your Bible, turn to those chapters. But here's what I want to do, is I want to look at kind of Josiah as a, a case study, if you will, of an individual where revival begins in an individual and truly impacts an entire nation. And so we're going to dive in. 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 1. We're going to go pretty fast here, okay? Josiah was eight years old when he became king. I said he was the youngest king in all of Israel's history, and that is true. And he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name, I can't pronounce it. His daughter's, well, I can't pronounce that. She was from a city I can't pronounce. Okay, next slide. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely, I love this, the way of his father. Father David, not turning aside to the right or the left, in the 18th year of his reign, pause. Okay, in the 18th year of his reign, something's going to happen. He's actually going to start to rebuild the temple, and in that process, they're going to find the book of the law, which is also known as the Torah. It's the first five books of the Old Testament. But up till that point, okay, before we kind of get to how he responds to that, I want to look at in the middle of verse 2 is this line that I think is so profound. It really captures the heart of Josiah. And it says this, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely in the ways of his father David. Now question, 
Was, and when he says Father David, he's referring to King David. Here's a question. Was Josiah's father King David? No. So what's the point of him saying it, and what does it mean? Here's the deal. King David is known as the king after God's own heart. Simply meaning there's something that was in the heart of David that actually reflected the heart of God to humanity better than anyone else. There was something about how uh, King David's passion for the Lord, his love for right, his hate toward wrong, his uh, passion for justice, his desire to see God glorified, his desire to see the power of God manifest, his desire to see people walk in bold faith. These are the things that God is passionate about, and David embodied them. And so when it says that he uh, did it, that he lived his life just like King David, uh, what he's saying is Josiah modeled the faith just like David did. And what happens during Josiah's reign? Well, revival to a nation comes to Israel and actually restores them to a place of passion just like David had led Israel to in the past. And so Josiah really starts this journey, though, at age 18. Now, as I even say that, at age 18 is where it really starts to take off. And for some of you, this is what I want to say before I go any further. If the Lord would give you ears to hear, that no matter how old you are, you're the perfect age for revival to start in you. If you're eight years old, and God would give you ears to hear, I pray that God puts a fire in your bones. Like, the, like Jeremiah the prophet talked about. It's like a fire in your bones and you're weary of holding it in. Indeed, you cannot. Maybe you're 18 and you just graduated and you're going, I, I, I don't know anything yet. You're the perfect age to be a revivalist. Maybe you're 28. Man, I'm starting to tear up. Sorry. Huh? Maybe you're 28 and you, maybe you're single or just young and just got married. Maybe you have a, a, a first kid and you're thinking, I don't know anything about life. I don't want to throw any curveballs. I couldn't even uh, pretend to be someone who's on fire for Jesus. And I would say, no, now's the perfect time to be the revivalist in your family and that someone would catch revival from you. Maybe you're 38 or 48 and you're sitting there going, I've just hit my stride and I feel like life is going how I want it to go. But you wouldn't describe your life following Jesus as super passionate. Well, I'm telling you, throw your life as you want it to go just out the window and passionately pursue Jesus. Maybe you're 58, 68, 78, or 88, and you're thinking, am I too late to have God start a major movement through me? And I'd say, if there's ever a lesson from Josiah, it's that age doesn't matter at all. Today is the day for revival to start. If God would give you ears to hear, May it start today. All right. So here's how it starts in Josiah. Check it out. All right. I'm going to turn my back to you. I'm going to wipe all my tears. <laughs> wipe my nose. Okay. This is what happens. Then Shaphan, don't name your kid that. It's a little weird. Okay. The secretary informed the king, Hilkiah. That's a cool name. Name your kid that. The priest has given me a book and Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. 
Now, why is he tearing his robes? Well, tearing your robes was this outward display of brokenness and humility. That's what a king would do if he was uh, uh, demonstrating humility. And so, okay, now remember 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people would humble themselves, that's where it starts. So Josiah is starting off well in this whole journey toward revival by being broken before the Lord, by demonstrating humility. Now, why is he broken? Check it out. Verse 13, it says this. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not uh, acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. And Josiah's freaking out. He's like, we're not following in obedience to the Lord. And so Josiah asks a prophet, what does the Lord think about our situation? Next verse, check it out. Tell the king, so the, the prophet comes back, tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, concerning the words that you heard. Because your heart was responsive, and you humbled yourself before the Lord because you tore your robes and you wept in my presence. Listen to this. I have heard you, declares the Lord. Remember 2 Chronicles 7, 14? If you humble yourself, if you uh, turn from your wicked ways, uh, sorry, seek, pray and seek your face, turn from your wicked ways, then I will hear you from heaven. His humility leads to God responding exactly the same. I have heard you. Your, your humility has God say, I've heard you. So humility is the first kind of posture we take before the Lord as kind of a precursor to revival. Humility is not, I, I read this quote from uh, C.S. Lewis, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it is thinking of yourself less. It's, it's a great little picture, because here's the important thing. It's not viewing yourself as if you have no value. But it is understanding that you are one with value serving another who is God, who has the greatest value. And when it comes to humility before God, the biggest question is simply this, who serves who? Is he serving me or am I serving him? So often it's like we pray and we ask, oh God, I've got this request and i got this request and i got this request. And sometimes we just forget to posture our hearts in a place of humility saying, oh yeah, I'm here to serve you to worship you, to adore you, to serve you, to give my whole life to you. And Josiah is going to reorient his entire kingdom around this idea of serving and following God first. Okay, so that's the first behavior is humility. We see Josiah model it. What's the second behavior in Second Chronicles? It's pray and seek his face, right? If my people would humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Now check out what how Josiah leads his people. Chapter 23, verse 1, it says this, Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all of the people from the least to the greatest, a.k.a. Josiah gathered everyone. And from there, he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar, and he renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord. Now check it out. How did he renew it? To follow, he renewed this covenant by, to follow the Lord and to keep his commands, his statutes, and his decree. And I love this. With all his heart and all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves also to the covenant. Now I love this. Let me just look at this real quick. He's pledging to follow the Lord and he's going to do this with all of his heart and all of his soul. Where have we heard that before? Well, in week two, when we were talking of, of 
uh, Unite 714, we're talking about praying and seeking his face. And we looked at this verse in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29, that describes how we seek after the Lord. This is how it describes it. If you seek the Lord, your God, you'll find him if you seek him with all your heart and all your soul. Kind of sounds sim- similar to how Josiah said, I'm going to follow after the Lord and walk in obedience with all my heart and all of my soul. This is a description of really the people also and the fervor of the, of the, the people had in seeking the Lord. Now check this out. I love this because it starts in Josiah, but it doesn't just end there. The people respond and they make the same covenant. They commit to it and they actually chase after this. Check it out in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 21 through 23. The king gave this order to all the people. Celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in the book of the covenant. Now pause real quick. It, it says... Celebrate the covenant of the Passover. But he doesn't tell them how to celebrate. He just tells them to celebrate. But it goes on to say this. Neither in the days of the judges who led Israel, nor in the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, meaning even in the king's days of David and Solomon, had any such Passover been observed. That's, that's like a crazy statement to me. That in all the days prior... Times of the judges, times of the kings, there had never been a celebration of the Passover as what happens right now in Josiah's day. Now, I don't know how to compare worship, prayer, or seeking of the Lord, but here God bothers to point out that there was this time of worship during this Passover that was for whatever way, made it the most precious or the most special or the most spectacular. Maybe it was the most heartfelt or the most heart and soul that's ever been put into a Passover celebration. But clearly there was something that was a part of this one that God said that one stands out as kind of more significant than all before it. And here's just, if I could give you an observation, it would simply be this. I don't know if I'm right on it, but I think I'm right on it. God doesn't have favorite worshipers, meaning favorite kids, favorite children, but he does favor some worship. Let me say it again. God doesn't have favorite worshipers, but he does favor some worship. There was something about the people of Israel and Josiah and the way they worshiped right now that made God say, this one stands out like none before. These people have worshiped me. They've sought me. They've, they've pursued me in a way like no one else has ever done. That, that just I don't know. Just, have you ever come into a church setting before and you didn't pursue God while you were there? Like your heart didn't chase after him and, and you just kind of left. And then there might be another time that you went to church and you're like, you were so desperate for him and you were just seeking after him and, uh, and, and he met you in a unique way. Now here's the deal. God didn't love you more or less on either of those weeks, but he did, I believe, love your worship more or less on those weeks depending on how we approach him in our pursuit of him. I think this is what sometimes happens. We unintentionally devalue the pursuit of God when we misapply the value of God's grace and love. Let me say it again, because it's kind of a complex idea, but we unintentionally devalue the pursuit of God when we misapply the value of God's grace and love. And what I mean by, by that is this. God's grace and love is lavished on all of us equally. His forgiveness is offered to us equally. Yet, uh, it's in that 
in that equality, we unintentionally devalue the pursuit of God. If I can't do anything to earn his love or his grace, which you cannot, sometimes we almost respond by saying, well, then uh, there's nothing more or less I should do to pursue him, and that's not right. We say it this way, there's nothing that you can do to make him love you more or less, and that's true. But there are actions and behaviors that we can do that he does love more or less. I've said it many times this way, stirred hearts stir the heart of God. When we're passionate about chasing after him, or passionately praying that God would show his love or his power in maybe someone's life or even in our own lives, when our hearts become passionately stirred for him, that stirs his heart. I think God has a greater delight in the hearts that display a greater uh, delight in him. And I would say it this way, it's not a competition of worship, but it should be a consideration in our worship. Meaning we don't try to out-worship one another when we're uh, at church or when you're at home worshiping. That's not the point. But I would say, I think it should be a consideration in our approach to God that how we pursue him matters. That yours and my pursuit of him matters. That we pray and seek his face not flippantly, but passionately. Maybe I could just ask it this way. Since it was said of Josiah that there was none before him that led or that had the celebration of the Passover like this generation. Maybe I'd just ask it this way. Uh, would it ever be said of us that no one in the generation before or after pursued the face of God like the people of Lakeland? Like, I, I think... I just think if I'm honest, I'd say I'm probably not pursuing God to the level and to the extent that I can or could or should. Once again, it's not a competition, but this is something that I think is the greatest opportunity of our lives is to pursue him with all the, of who we are. All right, final one. You know the final part of 2 Chronicles 7.14 that says, turn from your wicked ways. We talked about that last week. And uh, it's really the remainder of chapter 23 that captures Josiah's life and the people of Israel, what they end up doing. It's just this major purging of all the wicked things that have been uh, set up in their past, a lot by their predecessors, by the previous generation. But it says, turn from your wicked ways. And we talked about this a little bit last week. It's the difference between confession and repentance. To confess is to acknowledge my wrong, but to repent is to turn from my wrong. Maybe you grew up going to confession. And that's important that we acknowledge our wrong, but it's incomplete if we just acknowledge it and continue to do it again. It's, it's incomplete if we just confess. We're meant to turn from it and to walk away from it. And so there's a couple things that he, he does in modeling kind of this purging. It's so thorough. And this is what I love about it. I want to read some verses to you. Second Kings 23 verse 4, it says this. The king ordered Hilkiah the high priest, the priest next in rank, and the doorkeepers to remove from the temple of the Lord all the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all the starry hosts. He burned them outside of Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron Valley. And he took the ashes to Bethel. I think we're going to hop to verse 10. Um, says this, he desecrated Topheth, 
which was in the Valley of Ben-Hinnon. Listen to this, so no one else could use it. This is critical. He basically makes it so no one else can go and do wrong in these places to sacrifice their sons or daughters to the fire uh, to Molech. Continue on. He removed from the entrance to the temple of the Lord the horses that the king of Judah had dedicated to the sun. Josiah then burned the chariots dedicated to the sun. Verse 14, Josiah smashed the sacred stones and he cut down the Asherah poles and he covered the sites with human bones. Okay, a couple of things I just want to uh, observe here. In verse 4 and then in verse 14, he says a couple things. In, in verse 4, he says he basically... He wrecked this site so no one else could use it. In verse 14, he says he covered this next site with human bones. What's, his, what's the point? The point is that King Josiah is not just removing temptation from himself. He's removing temptation from others as well. He's, he's saying it's not enough for me to just say no to doing wrong and turning from doing wrong. I want to help other people be set up not to do wrong, but to walk in obedience to the Lord. And so he's removing all these things that could lead to temptation. And so I would uh, just ask you, sometimes there are things in our lives that you, that you would recognize, yes, this could lead me astray, or this should no longer be a, a part of my life. I remember years ago, there was this couple, they had bought, actually, when they were overseas, they were traveling, they'd gotten this really, they'd spent a lot of money, actually, on kind of this, I don't know, Hindu shrine-like thing, okay? So it was this shrine box and it was like worth a lot of money i remember they came to me one day and they said hey we feel like this we shouldn't have this in our house and we just need to get rid of it so we're gonna we're gonna sell this and i said whoa 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 and i it was hard for me to say this but i felt like i needed to i was like i hear that it was really expensive it's worth money you want to sell it to someone else but here's the deal if it shouldn't be in your house because it's a stumbling block because maybe there's an enemy stronghold connected with it it shouldn't be in anyone else's house either to be a stumbling block in their home and I was like, I don't think it should be sold. I think it should be burned. And that's like hard to hear when you've got something of value. But here's the whole question is that are we more concerned? Are we actually concerned about what could be stumbling blocks to other people? Do we actually set others up for success? Real practical. Think about from the most practical way that you might do this as a parent. Your child gets a phone. You don't just say, hey, here's a phone. Go have fun. You help them set it up so that they're set up not to fall into temptation via that device, right? And, and this is what Josiah's doing for his nation. He's saying, I want to set you all up so you don't fall into that temptation. And then notice some of the other things that he does. There, there's these, in verses 11 through 14, there's these horses that he's like, I got to get rid of them. They were dedicated to the sun. There are these chariots. I got to get rid of them. I got to burn them and destroy them. They were dedicated to the sun. Qu- quick question. Our horse is bad. Now, I know some of you are at home are like, he better not say horses are bad. I'm switching churches, or at least I'm changing my, my live stream. No, no, no. Horses are not bad. Are chariots bad? No, there's nothing wrong with horses or chariots. But these had been dedicated to the worship of the sun. So he's like, I just want nothing to do with these things. And here's the deal. There are some things in our lives that are actually, I would describe them as neutral in nature, And yet they have been dedicated to something that actually is dishonoring to God or could lead me away from the worship of God. In which case, we've got to steer clear of those things and say, I'm not going to have anything to do with them. Just a simple example, every year, my my family, we go on vacation. And uh, if 
If you're like us, when we're on vacation, we'll usually go into a, a couple tourist traps, you know, of tourist shopping, that type of thing. And I, I've gone into enough of these little, you know, tourist shops where you see these places where uh, my kids will they'll have like a, a a tray or whatever of all these stones and crystals and that type of thing. And it's like, fill a little bag for five bucks. And my kids sometimes have said, Dad, can I fill a little bag of, of stones and crystals for five bucks? And I'll be like, ah, I see. It's just, it's just a stone. It's just a crystal. It's not a big deal. But it, it, it's broken up into categories like, well, these red crystals will help you fall in love. And these represent joy. And these represent something else. And I'm like, it's just, it's, it's just sold in such a way that it's kind of under this mystic uh, I don't kind of umbrella, and we don't want anything to do with it. So we'll tell our kids no, and they'll be like, "Why can't we just just it's just a crystal?" I'll be like, "Yeah, but it's being sold with this whole mysticism behind it, and we want nothing to do with that." And so we'll say no to it. I remember years ago when I was uh, in, in high school, I was actually down in. I think Arizona, and I was once again in a tour shop, and I saw a dream catcher. I thought, oh, that's really cool. I bought a dream catcher. And then later I figured out, I was like, oh, this is like associated with kind of Native American kind of like uh, spiritism, and it's supposed to like catch my dreams. And I was like, oh, I probably shouldn't have that. And I, th- these are the things that sometimes we just grab hold of, and we don't realize that it's actually a way for the enemy to grab hold of you. And... If there's anything that Josiah models right now is he just goes, I, want n- I don't want anything that could trip us up. We're going to do a full purge. We're going to clean house of anything that could be dishonoring to God. And so a simple question for you would, would be this. What do I have that's questionable or honors anything other than God? All right, get ready. Some of you are going to have to go through your CDs. You're going to have to go through your movies. You're going to have to go through your magazines. You're going to have to go through your books. You're going to have to go through your clothing. And you're going to have to get rid of some things that you'd say, yeah, if I'm honest, that does not honor the Lord. But it's worth it. Rid your life of anything that dishonors God. Some of you, I know, you're going to have to get rid of your Packer gear. Because it's become a God to you. (laughs) I'm joking. Some of you are like, I'm gone. I'm out. He said that one statement about horses, now Packers, I'm gone. No, no, no. It is easier, though, as a Bears fan because they're not as good. So we never really fall to the form of idol worship as you Packer fans do. But no, all joking aside, this is probably one of my favorite verses in 2 Kings chapter 23. Verse 25, this is what it says. I love this. Neither before. Nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart, all his soul, and all of his strength in accordance with the law of Moses. He goes after God like no one else. And the awesome thing is his passion for God brought about 31 years of peace to Israel. His personal revival became a national revival. They experienced decades of revival in the land because of Josiah's personal revival. And if I could leave you with one thought, it's just this simple thought that revival in the many always begins with revival in one. Revival in the many always begins with revival in one. It began in Josiah and it spread to his entire nation and it can begin in you and spread from there. We're going to end with this song, God of Revival. And my, my prayer is, it, it just comes to this uh, <laughs> This, this spot in the song, I love it. Come awaken your people. Maybe this is a moment. It's like driving a, 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 a 
stake in the ground saying, in my life, I'm going to be a person who pursues God passionately. I want revival to begin in me. Come awaken your people. Come awaken this city. God of revival, pour it out, pour it out. Every stronghold will crumble. Let's hear the chains hit the ground. I think there are chains that right now are in some of your homes, in some of your lives, because some of the things that have been, uh, uh, that you've actually invited into your house has been a, a, a false form of worship. It's been dishonoring to God that you're going to say, I'm, I'm getting rid of that. And in that moment, chains are breaking in your lives. God of revival, pour it out. My prayer is that this song, maybe it becomes an anthem in your life right now. The personal revival begins here. But the fires of revival start in me. And they go ablaze from there. Let me pray for you. And then we're going to sing this song, God of Revival. Heavenly Father, would you start something in me? Would you start something in everyone who's watching right now? Every person who's listening. May we come broken and humble before you. May we passionately pursue you and purge our lives of that which would be dishonorable to you. God, start a fire in each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. If you would like to partner with Lakeland in helping people follow Jesus, be changed by Jesus, and commit their lives to the mission of Jesus, you can contribute to this mission by visiting lakeland.church forward slash give.